This podcast is brought to you by Nerd Wallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. Nerd Wallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric, and this is Next Question. You know, every so often an article comes along that you just can't stop thinking about. That happened to me recently when I read Rachel Aviv's newest piece from The New Yorker. It's called How an Ivy League School Turned Against a Student. It tells the story of Mackenzie Fierston, who grew up in a privileged St. Louis suburb and ended up in foster care after allegedly being abused by her mother, a prominent local radiologist, and her mother's boyfriend. Mackenzie eventually won a full scholarship to the University of Pennsylvania and a Rhodes Scholarship to study at Oxford. And that's when her story took yet another turn. After facing accusations that her depiction of her past was inaccurate, Mackenzie lost her Rhodes Scholarship and is now in the midst of a legal battle with Penn. Beyond the specifics of Mackenzie's harrowing story, though, Her experience raises a lot of thorny issues about the politics of higher education and our assumptions about race and class regarding abuse. I talked with Mackenzie for two hours and it wasn't always an easy conversation, but I wanted to give her the space to fully share her story. We covered some of the most painful and traumatic moments of her past. I greatly appreciate her willingness to speak so candidly. Also, a warning before we get started. This conversation touches on physical and sexual abuse, which may be difficult for some listeners. Wow, Mackenzie. I mean, what a harrowing, fascinating, and I have to say, confusing story uh, in The New Yorker. Before we get into it. What has the reaction been? Yeah, the reaction honestly has been overwhelming support. I've gotten 
hundreds or maybe even thousands at this point of messages of solidarity and a lot of other survivors sharing their stories and saying that they feel seen and heard. And that was the most important thing for me with sharing my story. Uh, so I think that's probably been the most special part of the outreach and reaction. Have you heard from your mother at all since this was published? I haven't heard from anyone in my um, family of origin or anyone from uh, in an official capacity for from the Rhodes Trust um, or directly from Penn, although indirectly. Uh, so I've mainly just been hearing from people uh, with support and a lot of love and mutual outrage at, at the situation. Well, let's let's backpedal and sort of talk about this profile. It was written by Rachel Aviv. Um, it's in the New Yorker. I'd encourage everyone listening to this to read the full article because it goes into great detail about your story. Let's talk a little bit about your personal journey. And then we can talk about some of the bigger systemic issues at play. You grew up in St. Louis. Tell me a little bit, Mackenzie, about your childhood. Yeah. So I grew up primarily with uh, my biological mother in St. Louis, as you said, for most of my life. And my her and my bio dad separated when I was about six. So he wasn't very present in my life. Uh, and there was a lot of difficult things that happened with him as well. Uh, and I went to a Montessori school when I was younger, and that was kind of the start of my very close relationship with teachers, which was just a, a really big saving grace for me throughout, I would say, my entire childhood. And school was definitely always an outlet for me. Uh, and then I ended up moving to a school named Whitfield, which is seven or six through 12th. Uh, and I went there starting in seventh grade. Uh, which is a, a private school in St. Louis County. And yeah, then I was living with my bio mom. Uh, she also started dating um, a man who turned out to be very abusive uh, and things began to also escalate with her over time. You mentioned there were troubles with your biological father as well. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, there was um, a degree of abuse with him as well. And it was interesting because a dynamic um, that became very prevalent was being really enmeshed with my bio mom because it felt like I needed to have one parent, <laughs> uh, at least that felt like a, a safe space for me. Um, and so, you know, in my early years, there was a, a lot of closeness or kind of a feeling of, the lesser of two um, evils, for lack of a better better term. And so I, I would say, you know, when I was younger, we were pretty close and there was a lot of um, care between us. And sometimes I feel like that's missed in talking about abuse is it's oftentimes just talked about as this one-sided, you know, everything was terrible and you kind of miss like the nuances of, feeling, you know, the feelings of love and care also existing in the space of trauma and abuse and harm. It seems as if you grew up in quite an affluent 
setting that your mom is a very well-respected member of the community, um, was exceedingly charming. Uh, people treated her with, with deference and respect. Can you sort of just give us a sense of what it was like growing up Mackenzie? <laughs> yeah, that was definitely, um, you know, the case. I kind of, and Rachel said, you know, relayed the sentiment in uh, her story of kind of feeling people perceived us as like the Gilmore girls <laughs> um, of kind of, you know, this mom, a uh, single mom and her precocious daughter and, you know, definitely growing up in this upper middle class home and doing the things that are typically associated with that, like playing sports and, you know, going to private school and being involved in a bunch of different activities and going to school with a lot of people who were upper middle class or, or very wealthy um, and didn't really have many experiences that I had at home, um, or I'm sure that some of them did and, and I didn't know about it. Um, so it was an odd dynamic because one, just even having a, a single mother in that community was a little bit, um, I don't know, if odd, out of the ordinary, sometimes looked down upon. Um, and she wasn't very involved in my school life like a lot of the parents were there of like, you know, volunteering for different events or planning different things. And so she didn't have a, a strong relationship with the community. Um, but it was also odd because, you know, when she did have interactions, she, she was so charming. Um, and I, I think was highly regarded because of her profession and the socioeconomic privilege that we had. Tell me a little bit about her profession, what she does, and um, sort of, can you give us some background about her profession? Yeah, so she um, is a radiologist. She did has done breast radiology, I think, for most of her career. <laughs> Feel free to fact check me on that. Um, that's as, as long as I remember her uh, doing radiology. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was breast radiology. So at the time, she was uh, the director of the breast center, I believe at St. Luke's hospital, which is one of the hospitals in St. Louis. So she had a big job. Yes, she did have a big job. <laughs> when did problems really start in your home? I, in retrospect, there were always problems. I just didn't really have the tools to name them. Um, and like I said, there were smaller things, you know, that happened, smaller things that happened over the years that I didn't really notice as behavior that wasn't acceptable um, because that was just the reality. And that was especially the case with, you know, uh, my, with Carrie, my bio mom dating her fiance for so long and the things that happened with him and just feeling like it was normalized for those to be ignored. Um, and so I guess, I don't know if I can even identify a moment of like when it began to get worse. It was just over time, I started to become more aware of what wasn't okay. And, um, but I will say in, in high school is when things started to escalate more than they had in the past. So, 
Can you describe some of your experiences? I know, again, the article goes into great detail about some of the things that you told Rachel had happened to you during the course of your childhood, primarily, as you mentioned, in your teenage years. And they sound pretty harrowing. Can you give us a few examples uh, of, of what you had to endure in your own home? Yeah, <clears throat> so, I mean, one that Rachel mentioned in the article, um, and I experienced sexual abuse from her partner for as long as he was in the picture, uh, which started when I was in seventh grade. Um, and it was off and on, but there was a particular incident um, where I woke up and he was on top of me um, and I did end up getting away. And it was one of the times I did call um, my mom and tell her what had happened. And I just remember she just started laughing <laughs> um, and telling me that she was honored that he had gotten her confused with her 15 year old daughter. Um, and it wasn't something we ever spoke about again, that specific incident. And, and was it a frequent occurrence or was this sporadic? Can you give me some kind of sense of how often this was happening and how aware your mom was about these various incidents? Yeah, it was pretty frequent. Um, there were, you know, times when it was more frequent than others. And I think there was, um, she was aware. And there were also, I'm sure, cognitive dissonance of not, you know, wanting to see or <laughs> hear what was going on. Um, and so eventually I gave up trying to talk about it or, or tell her about it, especially because there's obviously so much shame that's involved. And I just for so many years until honestly recently um, felt so guilty. And I, Rachel also mentioned the sentiment uh, that I relayed and it does, I think about it a lot, um, but I've heard people compare, you know, like acute assault to this rupturing or losing of yourself. And I feel like the long-term child abuse while your brain is still developing and there's so much you're learning about yourself felt like there wasn't a self to begin with. And not that either is, you know, better or worse. They're just different. And I felt like there wasn't, I felt like I was just writing as a passenger in my own body. And like there was, I was just this hollow person that would, you know, an assault would happen and I would go to school and like be on student government and go play my soccer game. And I, I really was the queen of compartmentalization. And in part, that was because of all the shame and the guilt that I had and carried for so long. That was what your wellness director at your high school said about you, this queen of compartmentalization. And school, in many ways, Mackenzie, became a refuge for you where you could really channel your, I guess, your full self and, and have a, almost a separate life. 
Yes, it definitely was uh, a separate a separate life in some ways. And the teachers at my school, especially because I got to be there over a period of six years and really got to establish deeper relationships. And also because of my feeling like I had a lack of relationship, I think I was it was in part a trauma response of like, I need some stable adult to have a, to have a connection with. Um, and so I, I established very deep relationships with, with my teachers and they gave me different parts of what parents would give to their kids. At least what I think parents would give to their kids at, at different times over the years. And were also the first people to believe me and make me feel like I was worthy of something more than what was happening to me and that I was more than just what was happening to me. More with Mackenzie Fierston when we come back. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. This podcast is brought to you by NerdWallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. During this period, you were also experiencing really serious physical abuse by your mom. Yes. Can you tell us about that, Mackenzie? Yeah. Um, yeah, it definitely is hard to talk about. Um, but like I said, it did get worse over time. Um, and I think Rachel does a good job of, you know, relaying that sort of trajectory of when it started and how it developed. Um, and when it started to get worse was my, uh, freshman and the sophomore year of high school. And it became 
impossible to hide, um, like showing up with bruises and black eye and teachers, you know, are mandatory reporters. And so they had to report things like that. Um, and in retrospect, didn't for a long time, even though there were things now, you know, having, I just graduated um, and I studied social work and you learn a lot about signs of child abuse or trauma at home. And I was thinking about this a lot in the last year. There were a lot of opportunities and things that were glaring signs very early on, as early as seventh grade. And none of that was ever really acknowledged or reported. Uh, and one example I came to that came to mind was, you know, I went through everything I could find in my computer when Rachel was writing the article. And I found this sketch that I had written in, in seventh grade for my theater class. And it was talking about horrible emotional abuse from a mother to her daughter. <laughs> and I, you know, I think of any other, a child who looked different or had, you know, wasn't an upper middle class white woman um, or their mom wasn't an upper middle class white woman doctor it would have been an immediate red flag to have this monologue um, that was so visceral and descriptive. And I, I don't think I was able to name that honestly until really recently because it, my teachers did do so much for me and the adults did so much for me in my life. And that is true as well as that a lot was overlooked because of the inherent biases that we all have. And you know, race and class and profession tells you to look at not upper middle-class white people as the traditional person who can do harm. Um, and so it's interesting to look back and see that there were a lot of signs for a long time, um, but at some point it became impossible to hide. What were some of the other physical manifestations you had that I assume started to tip teachers off as time went on? Yeah, some of it, I think, um, and again, these weren't things that I was able to identify as signs until much later and, and even learning about it from more of a like academic or professional level studying social work. Um, and in therapy, which thank goodness for therapy. Um, <laughs> but a lot of it was also, you know, signs of the sexual abuse as well as just having, you know, like I hated hugs. I didn't want anyone to get near me or touch me. I had an obscene startle response. I could never sleep. I couldn't eat. I didn't want to go home. I always wanted to be at school as much as possible. Um, and people started to observe that over time. And eventually I ended up disclosing to one of my history teachers uh, my sophomore year a little bit. <laughs> I was kind of dipping my toe in the water of like, there's something going on at home. I can't talk about it, but I'm, you know, getting scared and I need help. And she connected me with, like you said, the wellness director at our school. You kept a journal in high school. Mm -hmm. And the New Yorker piece includes a number of the passages you wrote. 
what prompted you to keep this journal and what has it been like for you going back and rereading some of these entries? It's been really difficult uh, to reread some of them because obviously it wasn't, I mean, I hadn't read it since this all happened. I, I maybe even since I re- wrote it um, and it was really difficult now a number of years later to go back and see how much my younger self was hurting and was being hurt and how much shame and, and guilt there was. Um, and I started it because the, the wellness director said, you know, if you're not going to talk about it, at least you can write about it and there'll be some kind of outlet to you. And it took, it took me a little bit because at first I just thought to myself, this is down why would I do this? And I, then I was convinced someone was going to find the journal. Uh, and I don't remember exactly what happened, but something happened and I just felt like I was going to implode on myself. Um, and like I needed to get it out in, in some fashion. And I definitely didn't feel ready to get it out in a verbal or a, a sense that someone else would hear it. And so I started writing a little bit about what I felt. You came to school with a bloody and battered face, and that represented a huge turning point for you, Mackenzie, and for your situation. Can you tell us about that? I had finally decided the day before that I was ready to, uh, for lack of a better term, go on the record or talk about what had happened. And um, two days before I had disclosed to one of my teachers uh, the sexual abuse that was happening at home. And so she had, you know, had to report it. They called the police. The police came out and took a report at her house. And the next day I went to school and I told the wellness director that I was ready. Like I couldn't do this anymore. Um, and it was just getting worse. And yeah, so I met with um, the Child Protective Services at school that day and told them what had been going on. And they said there was a special victims uh, detective who was going to come talk to me the next day, uh, but she wasn't available that day. Um, and so the plan was for me to go home um, and get some things and then go spend the night at my friend's house. And it ended up, I found out like last minute, my friend wasn't able to, like she wasn't home or her friend, her parents weren't home. That's what it was. And I also knew that was the first place that um, Carrie would look if I didn't come home. And so I was, you know, worried that if I went to her house or I didn't go to her house um, and I went somewhere else that she would show up and that friend would, I don't know, get into trouble or right. in harm's way. Um, so yeah, I ended up going home and, uh, that was my bio mom said she knew I had been talking. Um, and I don't remember, you know, all of what happened. Um, how did she know? I'm not sure. Like to this day, um, I know that Henry, her fiance had a lot of connections to the local police department, which was also in part why. I was so scared to tell anyone because I didn't think even if 
someone believed me that anything would happen to him. And that was something he told me. It was like, it doesn't matter what you say. I have trained, I worked with XYZ police officer. And I recently found out of something he told other women who he hurt. So it seemed like that is a, a reoccurrent theme. Um, and he also had a gun and he got my bio mom a gun for her birthday. And there was just so much fear, um, both in a physical sense, but also in the sense of most survivors already feel like we're not going to be believed. And then when it's added in that you have your abusers have friends at the police department, um, it's not exactly helpful or encouraging in coming forward or seeking help. Um, so that's been my theory, but you know, I don't know for sure. Um, and then you went home and your mom confronted you. Yes. That was the night, um, that the biggest episode of violence happened. Um, and I drove to school the next day, which I don't really remember. Um, the only thing I really remember is waking up in my room and, in the middle of the night um, and then trying to crawl over the door and lock lock it. And um, then her telling me in the morning, I'm taking the keys and I'm calling you and sick to school. Um, yeah, and then I, I guess I ended up driving, just getting a spare key and, and driving to school. Um, and then I showed up to the this teacher who had been helping me um, her room and passed out. Uh, and then was in the hospital for a couple of weeks and then foster care. There was an incident where a social worker was dispatched to your mom's, to your house. When did that happen and what happened? So that happened in March of my sophomore year of high school. And I showed up to school with a black eye and, of course, tried to cover it up uh, as I always did, but it was pretty dark. So it showed through the cover up and teachers began to notice pretty quickly. Uh, and in the middle of the day uh, during my Spanish class, the wellness director that you've mentioned pulled me out of Spanish class and asked me what happened. And the story that Carrie had told me to tell was that I fell playing with my dogs and hit my head on the table. And so that was what I told her. And she said, are you sure? Is that the story you're going to stick with? You really need to tell the truth. And I just said yes. And she told me she had to report it to Child Protective Services. And I just said, okay, fine. Do whatever you have to do. I was mad, um, even though I, you know, in retrospect, understand that's what she had to do. Um, and then I went back to class. And I had soccer practice. And then I was also in the musical, the school musical. So I went to musical rehearsal and I got a, a call from, um, or I can't remember if it was a call or a text from um, Carrie that was just like rage of like, you need to get home right now. There's a social worker at home. She's asking me questions, like get home right now. Uh, so I came home immediately and I got home and they were in the living room, just gabbing like they were old friends. Um, and this social worker was also a white woman. Um, and yeah, by the time I got there, I that she had already relayed the story of I fell, I had been playing with dogs, and 
I sat down in the living room. She asked me if that was what happened. I said, yes, because what, you know, I would have said that probably anyway, but also Carrie was in the room. Um, And then she said, this is my dream case. And I wish they were all this easy and I'm sorry for bothering you. And she left. Uh, So that was pretty discouraging uh, to have that encounter. After you were discharged from the hospital, what happened? So when I was discharged, I went to my first foster home. And that was uh, with a family who had another foster child and then two of their bio children who were there. Um, How old were you at that point? I had just turned, uh, I was like a month past 17. That must have been so strange for you. Here you are a junior in high school, and suddenly you find yourself in a foster home. What was that like, Mackenzie? I honestly felt so detached and numb that it was hard to even feel anything at the time. I felt overwhelmed and this devastating and overwhelming feeling of guilt because I just felt like both free and that the truth was finally out there, but also like I had ruined her life and his life and was, were people going to believe me, you know, uh, when I went back to school and like I mentioned, there was still so much shame and guilt and that is the overwhelming feeling i I remember when I, when I was feeling things and wasn't feeling detached, I would just have these waves of anxiety and and shame uh, for what was happening. Did you have any contact with your mom at all when you were living in the foster home? No, I didn't have any contact with her at all. And how were you treated by your foster family? Yeah, they, you know, they did their best. It was, there was a a lot going on in their house. Um, And so they, you know, did their best, but I started pretty quickly feeling kind of overwhelmed by just the chaos of their house and just leaving for days at a time. Um, So I would often go stay with one of my friends uh, and they made me a room at their house. And um, yeah, I wanted to stay with them as much as I could. And then other times I would just kind of rotate between different friends' houses and stay at a different friend's house each day, just so I didn't have to be there. Um, And it was familiar because like you said, it's extremely scary to just be dropped in this family you've never met before or known and doesn't really know anything about you. And there was at least familiarity in the friends that I was staying with. Did everyone in the school community know what was going on in your life and what had happened? Yes, they definitely did, uh, in part because the school is pretty small. There was only a little over 70 people in my grade, and it was on the news uh, that she was arrested. And so there was an article about it. And I also then learned when I got back to school that she had hired a defense attorney who was the father of someone in my grade. Uh, And so everyone knew very quickly 
what had happened and had opinions about what had happened um, because of that. How were you treated by your classmates? At first, I was treated pretty well, and there was like a pretty overwhelming sense of support, and I felt like it was pretty widespread, and I really didn't encounter any negativity until a few months in, uh, because initially there were criminal charges that were filed against her, um, and then they ended up being dropped several months later, right before it was going to go in front of a grand jury. And it felt like in the month or so leading up to that, there was, there started to be a shift among certain people, uh, including one of my best friends at the time, um, who just started to not talk to me. Then there was an anonymous Snapchat account that someone made that started sending me like pretty awful messages. Um, and calling me names and all of the whole gamut. Um, and so that was, you know, I think in the month leading up to that, and then certainly after the charges were dropped, and I felt like the sentiment started to shift from pretty unanimous support to a divided, people divided over believing me and not believing me. That must have been pretty traumatic on top of everything else to have what was once a sanctuary from your home life become this, I don't know, court of public opinion, and you're still a teenage girl. Yeah, it was. It felt pretty devastating, to put it lightly, uh, because it did feel like a sanctuary for so many years. And I felt you know, like I had always been class representative in student government and I was captain of the soccer team and I was so invested in the community. And then to have that dissipate um, and both sort of the passive aggressive, just like people stopped talking to me and my entire friend group over time just stopped talking to me. Um, felt pretty awful. And it also makes you know, there's, I, the, I didn't know the word gaslight at the time, but having that happen made me feel even more crazy and, and more like, what's wrong with me? What did I do wrong? I shouldn't have told anyone. I should have just stayed there. And m maybe I'm the crazy one. Maybe I did, you know, you just do backflips in your mind because you want anything other than what's the truth to be true. And at the same time, I also knew that there was no going back and I never wanted to go back to my home of origin or anyone that I lived with. We'll be back in a moment with more of my conversation with Mackenzie Fierston. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet there's complexity at every turn criminal trials for one of those candidates, young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. 
This podcast is brought to you by Nerd Wallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. Nerd Wallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. I was struck by a quote from one of your teachers. This is what the teacher said. When you've grown up with privilege and everything around you is pretty and pristine and predictable, your tolerance for anything outside that world isn't very high. People didn't want to deal with it anymore. People who had once supported her, you, Mackenzie, were finding excuses to turn their backs or walk away. Can you elaborate on that and, and what that teacher meant? I don't think anyone wants to believe that a parent can do that to their child or anyone can do that to their child. And when it's someone in your community, that can be kind of a rocking reality for some people. And you have to make a choice of either you're going to acknowledge that and process that and understand how these identities and privileges intersect and how race and class and profession governs the justice system and who's believed, or you can create more cognitive dissonance and just say that person's lying. They would never do that. This other person, we know them, they're nice. And that is the reaction so many people get because we have this idea of someone who causes harm is like the guy who leaps out from behind the bushes late at night, or they look a certain way because they're a person of color or they're low income or whatever stereotypes media and the culture has created about people who cause harm, which are obviously not an accurate reflection of reality. Abuse and and violence can happen across all income levels and races and professions. And we've seen that happen time and time again over the last few years with the Larry Nassars and Jeffrey Epstein's and Woody Allen's and all of these people who are, you know, represent these like incredibly powerful elite identities. And that's why they were able to cover up their abuse for so long and render their survivors further invisible because they were the antithesis of what people imagine or assume is someone who can abuse. While you were in foster care in your junior and senior years, were there some teachers who continued to support and embrace you? For example, your wellness teacher or the teacher who made that comment 
uh, about people turning their backs. Did you feel supported by some members of your school community? I did. And honestly, I felt incredibly supported by the teachers there. I didn't really, even when the community sentiment started to turn. Like the families and the kids. Yes, that was who I felt more like the sentiment of disbelief and shame was coming from, whereas the teachers I felt were pretty consistent supporters and believers in me. I think where your story becomes somewhat controversial is when you go to college. Mm -hmm. You apply to Penn and got a full ride at the University of Pennsylvania. And the president at the time, Amy Gutman, defined her tenure in large part by her efforts to aggressively address inequality. So what were your impressions, Mackenzie, of the school's efforts in in this regard? Yeah, it was interesting to a lot of us in um, the, it's pronounced FIGLI, F-G-L-I, which is the umbrella term for uh, first-generation and or low-income students. And it was really hard to go there and show up and have no, little to no resources because it is a fairly diverse community. Like people don't all have the same stories. And my friend Ania Moore had a wonderful quote in, in the story uh, about how different, you know, Figley doesn't fit into one shape or size. But something that was a pretty unanimous sentiment was feeling very unsupported by the administration because we didn't we didn't feel like we were being supported enough and we had to fight for so much like when i got there the all the uh, dining halls closed on holidays and we had at least the first year uh, students had to leave our dorms over winter break and for students who don't have you know a safe or steady relationship with home that's really hard and it's a source of panic and yeah there were a lot of things we had to fight for over the year and that is the key word fight it wasn't something that we were heard on the first time and there was a lot of people who did a lot of organizing and work to advocate students who organized and worked to advocate for us let's talk about sort of the application process before you you get into pen Mm-hmm. What was your understanding, Mackenzie, of what it meant to be first-generation low-income, something that you wrote on your application to the University of Pennsylvania? Yeah, so just to clarify, I, I actually had never heard that acronym or knew what it was, so it wasn't my undergrad application, but my grad application that um, there was like a box, of, <laughs> the controversial box that I checked <laughs> Um, which it is confusing because I applied to grad school my first semester of sophomore year. Um, but the one when I was in high school applying to college, I didn't even know what that term was. Um, it wasn't something I had become aware of until I think the months leading up to coming to Penn. Um, but I was, the coding system had labeled me as Figley, um, which- When you were applying as an undergraduate. Right. Yes. And I applied through a program called QuestBridge, which pairs students who are in more vulnerable positions, um, like being low income or first generation or having a different relationship with home um, with like higher performing schools. Uh, So that also 
is kind of was an added level of support. Let's talk about your college admissions essay, because you talked a lot about your home life. Mm -hmm. You know, I think there have been accusations, as you well know, that that was embellished or exaggerated. Can you talk about that? And looking back on it, do you feel it might have been in any way, shape or form? So, yeah, I guess just as context, yeah, it was a, a poem I wrote, um, which was very cheesy about the healing power of gratitude, um, which I feel like is, I almost cringe when I say now, because I'm like, oh my gosh, 17-year-old Mackenzie. Um, but so, yeah, the first two paragraphs um, are talking about when I, you know, found myself in the hospital and looked at myself in the mirror and just felt like I couldn't recognize myself. Um, and then about this, the same teacher I referenced had told me to make a gratitude list. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking? Why would I make a gratitude list? Um, I'm in the hospital and I, my life felt over. Uh, and I decided, I guess I have nothing to lose. And so I started making a gratitude list while I was in the hospital and I made them every day for years. And it really was such a healing thing for me um, because it also so often refocused me on the people who supported me and not feeling alone. Um, so that was what the essay was. And I have obviously read it a zillion times in the last year and a half. Um, and it's, yeah, it's accurate with medical records. And one of the questions that Carrie's uh, defense attorney asked me was, well, could you really not recognize yourself? Like when you looked in the mirror and yes, I could tell that it was me. Like I, you know, there was a mirror and I was looking in it. Um, but I, you know, there were bruises all over my face. I had, a, there was blood in my hair. And so it didn't feel like me. And I think that was, that was one of the things that Penn's scrutinized. Um, or I said, there was blood in my hair and they said there wasn't that much blood in my hair. So it was really like down to these nitpicky things, um, which, yeah, were not only true, but also, you know, when you're writing an experience of like your trauma, I think I can say like, I didn't recognize myself because I didn't, you know, like myself as a human or like as a person in that moment. Um, yeah. I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah, no, it does. I mean, I guess so much of the controversy, Mackenzie, focuses on this first-generation low-income mm -hmm. assignation. When you were put in that category or even checked that category for your graduate school application, what were you thinking in terms of that characterizing your own experience? Yeah. So... Because I had been coded as a Figley student, uh, right off the bat, I was invited to a pre-freshman program, which takes like Figley students or vulnerable students um, and brings them to campus about a month and a half early, just because I think the university had some idea that often students don't always have anywhere to go or don't know what to do over the summer. And I wasn't able to do that because I had a, a full-time job already that summer, but as soon as I got to Penn, I started being invited to Figley events uh, and just was so welcomed by the community. And 
it did feel like the first place where I felt like these are my people, like they understand what it's like to not necessarily have a home life or to be on full aid, which was a little bit like there was shame attached to that because there were so few of us. It wasn't something you went around, you know, saying like, I'm a Figley student. Um, and, and, you know, I'm working all the time and I have multiple jobs and I can't do all the same extra extracurriculars you can do because I'm working. Um, and they got that and they were experiencing things like that. And we all had different experiences, but we had this shared experience at Penn um, of being in this like really elite space, which some of I, you know, understood from my previous background and like knowledge of that and also feeling like extremely out of place as well. Um, so yeah, when I applied to my grad school program, um, I was 19 and um, I started working on it after the summer of my freshman year, after my freshman year, um, and then submitted it first semester sophomore year. Um, and the essay part, which doesn't seem to be, there's been no controversy over that, um, which, cause it was just a question about why do you want to do social work? And I wrote about why I want to do social work um, and what I want to study and whatever. But the controversial boxes is there's two demographic questions. And one of them says, like, are you from a low income family? And the other one says, like, are you the first generation in your family to attend college? Um, and I had been meeting with the associate director of admissions regularly and had asked her, like, how should I check these boxes? you know, like, I don't really know what I'm, how to do this. And she said, you should check both the boxes. They're not used for admission, but they're used to, for financial aid. And you should select what's going to give you the most financial aid. Um, and that was consistent with when I asked her again in December of 2020, she said the same thing. Um, so I kind of felt like, great, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to check both the boxes. Um, and what really got me hung up, I think also was not just thinking like, oh, this person told me to do it, but it was also the word family. And I was like, I don't have one of those. Like, why would I ever reference them? Like, why would I think about them? They don't have anything to do with me or who I am. Um, and so I think there is an added level of like genuine anger and a need to like, separate myself from them and not acknowledge them in any way. Um, so I just checked yes to both boxes and that was it. And I moved on. Um, there wasn't like a place to add more information. So in retrospect, I'm like, I wish there had been like a, do you want to elaborate more box? But there is yes or no. And like at the time, yes to both of those felt like the right answer. Um, and eventually the pen like agreed, yes, you're definitely a low income student. Um, like, thank you. <laughs> um, but it was the first generation part in that box that there has been controversy about. You must have been very conflicted with the, particularly with the first generation part. I'm assuming the low income was true because you had no support from your family to go to college, correct? <laughs> correct. And no one could have paid your admission to the University of Pennsylvania or any other school. Right. But the first generation part is, is sort of the thorny part, right? And I think 
I'm just curious if you felt conflicted about that or if you ever expressed to some of the other students like, oh, I, you know, they put me in this category, but I'm really not a first generation to go to college. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I have never identified myself as a first generation student because it is complicated. And even though I fit into Penn's category, like they have pretty extensive and expansive category of first generation and I did fit their definition, it was something I, I didn't feel like I identified with the experiences of first generation. In some ways, I felt like when I got to college, like all these people were calling their parents to like read over an email they were sending to a professor or like help them with stuff. And I was like, oh my God, what do I do? Um, but like, you know, going into college, I did have that understanding of what it means to navigate higher education. Um, so that was why I never claimed like the first generation part of Figly. Um, it's an umbrella term. So you don't say like I'm Lee or I'm like Fig. <laughs> um, so you just reference yourself as Figly. Uh, but besides like that, the box. Um, and at the time, like I just felt like if I have to put myself in a yes or no box, like that is what felt truer um, at the moment. But it wasn't ever an identity that I like claimed um, or like talked about myself as having. Um, and my friends like did know about my background and like my my who my bio family was um, and some of what had happened to me. And I was very private about it um, in in terms of like the abuse and a lot of that. My friends like literally learned about when the article came out. Um, which I gave them a warning. I was like, you know, it's going to talk a lot about some of my experiences of abuse. Um, but they knew, you know, and a lot of us like shared our different stories because some of what is qualified as like low income or, or first generation or like people's parents who were doctors in another country, but then they came to this country and their degrees aren't, you know, like everyone had these different experiences. So within the Figley community, it was pretty common to share them. Um, and even just support one another in terms of like navigating and trying to understand the shared experience. You were obviously and are an incredibly impressive student academically. And in the summer of 2020, uh, you decided to apply for a Rhodes Scholarship. Yes. And that November, you were named as one of 32 scholar elects. Yes. What did that mean to you? What was that like to be in that small group of people? It definitely, it felt like a shock a little bit um, because all of these people who, you know, also were named Rhodes Scholars were amazing and just, I could run a country. I mean, um, and I, I think a lot of people have a little bit of imposter syndrome, even just being in, compared to all of these incredibly brilliant and just incredible uh, organizers and social justice um, oriented people. And so I felt a little bit like anxious of almost like, oh my God, am I really supposed to be here? But I also felt uh, going back to my undergrad essay, extremely grateful. Um, that I had the opportunity to go and study what I wanted to study, which was the foster care to prison pipeline. You got the Rhodes Scholarship. And shortly after that, 
there was an article in the Philadelphia Inquirer. Yes. This is why this story has layer upon layers. It's sort of like, and then, and then. But this article started with this sentence. Mackenzie Fierston grew up poor. Yes. <laughs> you never told the reporter that you grew up poor. Why do you think she came to that conclusion? So she did actually uh, talk to Rachel or send an email is my understanding. And um, it was because I described myself as Figley and also because Penn in their announcement described me as Figley. So it seems like that was an assumption of if you're Figley, then you had to have grown up like that your entire life. So did you talk to this reporter about any circumstances surrounding your childhood and this very unusual uh, series of events that led you to be completely cut off from your mother, from any kind of financial aid, et cetera, et cetera? So the initial interview that we had was like about 20 minutes um, and mostly was centered around what I wanted to study. I said that I went into foster care in mid-high school um, and she asked me why. And I just said, you know, it was related to abuse, but I don't want to go into it. And it doesn't really feel relevant to what I want to study, which is what you asked me about. Um, and that was really the extent of anything we talked about related to my background. And uh, it was the next day when the article came out um, was when we had a more extensive conversation and really went through the whole life history. With this reporter? Yes, with this reporter. Did she ever follow up or correct the article, it, having gotten more information from you? Because if I were reporting that story, I would say this, this requires more exposition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. So the only time, uh, at least immediately, that I heard from her was she just said, you know, I wanted to give you a heads up. There was an anonymous email. I unfortunately get these a lot, so I'm not really planning to do anything about it. Um, and when she called me to tell me that was when we had a longer conversation about birth to the present um, and really the whole nuances. And yeah, to this day, there has never been a correction on the article. So it's still out there on the interwebs, um, even with obviously all this information. I can't tell you why that is. Um, she did correct the headline, which I asked her to correct, which said, I grew up in foster care. Um, and she did correct that. But there has never been a correction on the grew up poor part. Did you ever claim in either your application or any kind of forms or essays to Penn that you quote unquote grew up in foster care, Mackenzie? No, I actually was pretty clear and I didn't I when I first was that came out, I was like, did I say something that's misleading? And then I obviously went back and read through all of my stuff. And on my undergrad application, I actually say in, in multiple places that I went into foster care beginning of my junior year. And one of them, I even gave the exact date. Um, so it, I was very clear about that. Stay with us for more of my conversation with Mackenzie Fierston right after this. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. 
When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. This podcast is brought to you by Nerd Wallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. Nerd Wallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. When the article came out in the Philadelphia Inquirer saying you grew up poor, the reporter got an anonymous email questioning that. Yes. But then the floodgates opened and many people were accusing you of lying about your situation and trying to game the system, essentially. What was that like for you to watch all these people or to hear or see them questioning your credibility and your life experience? So it was interesting because initially it was one anonymous email and then I later found out about two. And so I I really didn't feel discredited or disbelieved on a wide scale. Um, and when I eventually saw the emails, it felt pretty clear to me that they were from my bio family. Um, but it was really, you know, a week later after the article came out and after I was named a Rhodes Scholar, I got an email from the director of the, it's called CURF, but it's the Center for Undergraduate Research and Fellowships, saying that she and the deputy provost, now interim provost, Beth Winkelstein, wanted to meet with me via Zoom. And I said, you know, what is this about? Um, they just said, it doesn't matter, we need to meet with you. And I said again, like, is this about the anonymous emails? I'm already aware. I've worked with Penn Police in the Women's Center, Civic House, like all these different communities who are very aware of the situation and they are happy to fill you in on it. Uh, and they said, no, we, we need to talk to you. And I said, okay, but I'm bringing someone with me who was at the time the Senior Associate Director of Civic House because I just felt a little bit on edge about what this was going to be. Uh, so I showed up to this, it was a zoom call and it just felt like an immediate interrogation. Um, it started off with, uh, Beth Wengelstein saying, uh, to the 
support person that I brought. I know you're here to support Mackenzie, but you cannot speak. If you speak, I'll disconnect you from the Zoom call. Mackenzie, you're the only one who's allowed to answer. You need to answer my questions exactly. And if you don't, like, I'm going to cut you off and go back to the question. And so it just immediately, I was like having flashbacks to, to deposition depositions um, and like cross-examinations I was having. And she started asking me questions about my application, some of the same things that we just talked about, and then pretty abruptly switched to questions about my abuse. And they were very specific. So it became pretty clear to me that they had either reviewed medical records or spoken to my bio mom, which I later have found out that is what happened. Um, and so it's just kind of this like drill of questions. What happened that you went to foster care? What were your injuries? Why were you in the hospital that long? How long was the abuse going on? Was there abuse with your mom's partner? Like it was just this rapid fire of questions. And by the end, I'm like hyperventilating and crying maybe harder than I've ever cried in my life. Um, and like literally couldn't speak at the end. And then she was like, okay, great. We're done. And that, that was it. Um, she did at the very end offer to connect me to support. Um, and I was like, I think I'm okay. I'm going to schedule an extra therapy session. Thank you though, for giving me content for that session. Um, so that was the, the first, I guess, um, downwards turn of events. After you were questioned by the deputy provost and the very emotional experience you have, the school ultimately sent a letter to the Rhodes Trust stating that you failed to, quote, acknowledge your upper middle class upbringing and that you provided a dis description of a life of abuse that the judicial process concluded could not be substantiated. The Rhodes Trust launched its own investigation and you eventually withdrew from the program. Why do you think this letter said a description of a life of abuse could not be substantiated? There's a few reasons I think that was the case. One of them is because, unfortunately, that's a what a lot of people rely on, is this could only happen if there was a conviction when we know in reality can't remember the exact numbers, but I think it's about like 13% of people report, 1% go to trial and like 0.1% um, get convictions. So it's extremely hard in cases of abuse and assault for there ever to be a conviction, let alone when it's a white, like a pretty white woman who's a doctor. It was, I mean, looking back, it is felt like David and Goliath. Um, and so, but it was at the same time still pretty shocking to me to read that they had put that in print. And then I came to learn that the general counsel, Wendy White, had been in consistent contact with my bio family. Um, they had, she'd invited them to write multiple emails to her to help write that letter. Also spoken to my bio mom's defense attorney, which wasn't surprising because a lot of the questions that I was asked in this interrogation were almost exactly what I was asked in the cross-examination um, of a trial that happened in March of 2019. So I think both of those things probably influenced them. You know, they started immediately not with asking me, but 
literally within 48 hours of this anonymous email, Wendy White was on the phone with, with Carrie, which still shocks me. Um, and I didn't learn about that until a couple months ago. But if you start not with asking like a survivor what their experience was, and you just immediately go to the abuser and say like, oh, did you abuse that person? They're probably going to say no. Um, and so I think they went into writing that letter with a lot of disbelief and the same accusations that were thrown out by my bio family. How do you think your mom characterized you, Mackenzie? I mean, did she say you were a difficult girl, that you were troubled? How did she turn the tables and place the blame on you to the point that Penn would write a letter like that? My understanding is she repeated the narrative she said when I went into foster care, which is that I was a troubled kid. I was severely mentally ill. I made everything up. I hadn't heard this one, but there was an, uh, one of my bio aunts wrote in this email to Wendy White that I had planted my own blood and used the movie Gone Girl to stage this mass abuse, which I don't know if I've ever seen. And I Googled it and the movie came out after I went into foster care. Um, so there was a lot of the same kind of gaslighting behavior and accusation when I went into foster care that were repeated. Um, I was wondering if you felt you were seeing these biases play out over and over again, that your accomplished, pretty, uh, successful doctor mom could not have in a million years been capable of hurting her only child. Yes, absolutely. And that's really the reason I want to tell my story is because I do think it's emblematic of these societal notions of who can be abusive and who can cause harm. And we know, at least cognitively as a culture, that that isn't true. Again, because we've had, me too, we've had all of these moments of like reckoning with, oh my God, white, successful, like academically educated people can also cause harm, like mind blowing. And we've had to reckon with this. And still there are people, and unfortunately a lot of people who don't see that. And especially almost everyone who's been involved with this have also been white, highly educated professionals. Um, and I don't think that's a coincidence that these people are the ones who are having a hard time believing that this can happen by someone who looks like them. By the way, I want to read something that one of your peers, Ania Moore, who helped found Penn First, which was an organization supporting low-income first-generation Penn students. She wrote on, on your behalf to the Rhodes Trust, and I wanted to read this because I think it will help listeners understand some of the forces that have been at work in your whole story. She wrote, when I founded Penn First, it was for students just like Mackenzie and her membership and leadership in the club was welcomed with open arms. Figley kids can go to private school and or college preparatory school, just as Mackenzie did. 
We are not all inner city children who live in filthy ghettos and attend crumbling, rat-infested public schools as the wider media may portray us to be. What did you think of that letter? Ania is one of the most brilliant people that I know and obviously so eloquent and powerful in everything she says. Uh, and I thought she did an incredible job of, of capturing, again, the connection between my personal story and why I'm sharing it. And that's because like these systems and institutions uphold these beliefs of who can cause harm and who can do bad things. And that's why we are where we are, you know, with still fighting tooth and nail to be believed. Um, and the level of silencing that survivors like face uh, and the reasons that some people face that more than others, I think she captured that beautifully um, with that sentiment. And the assumptions people make about yes. others and their yeah. lived experiences. Absolutely. And I think that's so much of what the hallmark of the story is like, it is the assumption people make is even though the average time in foster care is about 11 months, people make the assumption that just like Ania said, that foster kids are from quote, inner city rat infested public schools who have been in foster care their whole life. And their parents were addicts, you know, they make all these assumptions and, you know, I'm certainly not under any illusion that I am like the average foster kid. Like, obviously that's not true, but it's also not what people associate as like the typical foster kid doesn't exist either because those are rooted in biases and racism and classism. Um, and I think that's hard for people to unpack because we have to acknowledge that exists within all of us, myself included. We all have biases. We all exist in a world um, that enforces those biases. But I think it's really hard for people to sit with that and understand our part in it and also understand that we have to do something every day to dismantle it. And that silence just upholds the status quo. You withdrew from the Rhodes Scholarship Program, but I'm wondering, do you think you could have made your case and as a result, educated more people if you had stayed and fought a system that you believe mischaracterized your situation and mistreated you? So I guess a couple of things come to mind. Um, one, I did initially fight. You know, Penn tried very hard to get me to not fight. Um, they threatened both of my degrees. They tried to throw an NDA at me. Um, if, you know, saying that if I didn't sign it and withdraw from the Rhodes Scholarship, then they would make sure my undergrad degree was revoked. Um, or at least that was my understanding. All this happened over the phone. So there's different perspectives on what is said. Um, <laughs> but uh, there was a lot, there was a great effort. And this was by Penn at the time, not the Rhodes Trust to not have me submit my initial defense. Um, and then I did, like you said, I submitted tens, over a hundred pages of medical documents, police records, letters, like you said, about 30 of them from detectives and state's attorneys and elementary, middle and high school teachers and friends, all corroborating my abuse and um, my fig status. 
And then they came back with their initial report um, and they recommended that it be rescinded. So then I had another chance to kind of rebut some of what they had found. And I wanted to do that because there were one, just some pretty basic errors, like my name um, and like my place of birth and that I didn't have a sibling and just like pretty easily refutable um, claims that they made. And that was when uh, the general counsel came back um, and again, kind of made these threats and intimidation of she needs to withdraw and sign an agreement with us and signed a claims agreement that she's not going to sue us or we're going to never give her her MSW. We're going to start proceedings to revoke her undergrad degree. Um, because like you said, I wrote about this instance of abuse, which they think qualifies as like false information on my application since it wasn't upheld um, in the court of law. And this time there was the added threat of they would report me to the federal government for wire fraud if again i didn't withdraw from the roads and sign this nda with them uh so federal prison is no joke so i was a little scared um by that even though i later came to find out that was a tool for intimidation and there was absolutely no case um for that but i ended up withdrawing and but still fighting pen and obviously to this day i'm still fighting pen um you know i filed a lawsuit against them they also are trying to make me write a letter of apology um which i will not be doing obviously because the only people who deserve an apology are me and all survivors and i feel like that is the pathway i'm using to try to fight for you know accountability and change and also telling my entire story to the internet for the rest of my life feels like a, a pretty <laughs> radical way um, to share my story. And I guess the other reason, and I think this is really important, that I now am not wondering if it would have been any different if I used that last level of appeal is because I learned that I'm the third Rhodes woman who this has happened to who's lost their scholarship um, because of anonymous letters and at least one of them is a survivor. And it seems to me that there's a pretty sexist trend among the Rhodes Trust of making people or making certain decisions to review certain women's applications based on um, anonymous claims. And I actually did recently retain um, a British law firm to investigate potential options, because I do think that's another opportunity to, you know, fight and look for accountability and change. Change the system that you feel abused you really all over again. Yeah, because this is what it looks like, in my opinion, when people with power abuse and shame and belittle and disbelieve survivors. And this is what it looks like when abusers power and privilege embolden disbelief and perpetuate the you know systemic abuse again that's rooted within our society um and it's really important that we at least in my opinion that we expand the conversation around me too to not just you know the sharing of stories which is so important and i really do believe that when we share we heal and that every survivor who wants to have their story told should be 
heard and healed. And we also need to think about why do so many of us have these stories? Like it's not just coincidence, it's because there are systems and institutions which keep us quiet and allow the violence to keep happening. When we come back, the next chapter in Mackenzie's story. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. This podcast is brought to you by Nerd Wallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending, some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. What's ahead for you? You changed your name from Morrison to Fearston. I did, yes. That was actually before all of this. Um, so I changed it in uh, December of, of 2019. Um, and I, I, that is also representative, I think, of a lot of the core of the story of wanting to separate myself from my family of origin and embrace sort of my own identity as the person I want to be and feel like I've fought to find and heal, which I guess is, um, this is not exactly your question, but I feel like I've kind of learned that healing is an act of reaching inwards. And for me, that was like finding the person that was always there and realizing it wasn't me who was broken or it wasn't that I didn't know who I was. It was feeling like I needed to bring back or find like more of who I was and like the actual Mackenzie that had been erased over years of abuse. And that was part of what changing my name to something that I felt like represented that finding of myself and like really embracing that meant to me. While you withdrew from being a Rhodes Scholar, you were still able to enroll in the sociology PhD program at mm-hmm. Oxford. So tell me where you are in terms of your educational and personal journey now. 
Yeah. So I, like you said, I'm in my first year of my uh, PhD at Oxford. I'm going into my third trimester. Uh, and it's been great. I mean, I've, this is what I set out to do to study the relationship between incarceration and foster care. So I've been, you know, developing my proposal and I'm getting ready to defend it um, in our oral exam coming up and then hopefully start my field work, fingers crossed, um, once I get ethics approval. And personally, it's so complicated because I have felt tremendous liberation and, and power in the story being released, which I didn't know if I would feel, but there is so much shame in the silence and I feel like silence just breeds shame. And so I feel like deciding to tell the story was and still is extremely healing, even though it's opening me up to more disbelief and shaming. It also feels like, but it's out there, like it's not a secret anymore. And that has been so powerful for me. And, you know, life is going to keep going. I'm still fighting with Penn. Um, I'm still fighting, fighting to make change within Penn and more broadly and within the Rhodes Trust. And that's going to be hard. And there are going to be days where I feel the shame and I feel tired and exhausted and think to myself like, oh my God, did I make, you know, should I keep going with all of this? And I feel like it's important to acknowledge that because I feel like sometimes people get a chance to share their voice and they're like, everything is great now. You know, I had a happy ending and I feel like it's important to relay and realistic expectation of like what it means to come forward with your story and what the healing process looks like. Um, it is hard. <laughs> and so they're good days and bad days. And I hope that we'll keep being more good ones and that we will find justice. What would you say, Mackenzie, to the people at Penn and to the administration at large about their handling of this situation? Ooh, so much I want to say. Uh, and this goes really not just to Penn, but to all institutions. And that's something I also want to emphasize and not to be lost is it's not as if this is just like one bad university or one bad sad story. It's it happens everywhere. And I hope that it doesn't get, you know, exceptionalized because it's not an exception. It's the rule. Like this is what happens. Um, and I feel like what I want to say is that survivors deserve to be heard and believed and seen and to be treated with respect and compassion and not shamed. And at the least, maybe abusers shouldn't be the first point of contact and legal precedent shouldn't be the only precedent for truth. And most importantly to me, the truth really is something that cannot be changed. And I'm not going to let anyone tell me that it's different or try to manipulate it anymore. Hopefully people will really understand all of these kind of twists and turns in your story, Mackenzie. But what would you say to people who hear this story and somehow still cling to the notion that you manipulated the truth or took advantage 
of a loophole or quote unquote game the system? Honestly, I don't really have anything to say to them and I don't even want to give them any power because at this point, there's not much I can do to convince them otherwise. And more honestly, what comes to mind, which this isn't exactly related, but it's something I would want to tell my younger self because this this disbelief and like people who are set on disbelieving me has occurred since day one. I'm sure if you read the New Yorker article, you saw like the initial article that came out saying that Carrie had been arrested, had just, it was almost unanimous comments that I was a spoiled brat, that I made it all up um, among many worse sentiments. And I wish I could go back and, and tell my younger self not to listen to those voices and that it's, it's worth it to keep fighting for the truth because it doesn't change. And even though there's times when you're going to feel crazy and there's times when those people make you feel like you're crazy or you're wrong or something you know happened for 100% fact didn't happen, you have to ground yourself in the truth um, and find and surround yourself with people who are going to help you do that. So I read, yes, Chanel Miller's book, Know My Name, and she had this sentiment that it was something along the lines of, know your truth, hold on to your truth, it will carry you where you need to go. And I wish I had read that seven years ago um, when I was a teenager and this all began because I feel like it is exactly what I needed to hear. Thank you so much again to Mackenzie Fierston for sharing her story with me. We also reached out to the University of Pennsylvania for a statement. Here is that response. The New Yorker article did not accurately reflect the university's thorough, careful, and sensitive investigation into the very serious questions which were raised by prior judicial rulings and the findings of the Rhodes Trust another reputable institution that conducted its own extensive review of the facts. It is our mission to do everything possible to support all our students and to ensure that under-resourced students have access to Penn's world-class educational opportunities. We have always recognized that this particular situation involves a painful family experience, and we have consistently approached it with empathy and a thoughtful consideration of all of the facts available to us. As an institution, we cannot overlook the importance of integrity in our university community or ignore clear violations of our principles and ethical code because we have a responsibility to ensure that all members of our community, most especially other young people, have fair and honest access to opportunities. That again is the response from the University of Pennsylvania. Next Question with Katie Couric is a production of iHeartMedia and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are me, Katie Couric, and Courtney Litz. The supervising producer is Lauren Hansen, associate producers Derek Clements and Adriana Fazio. The show is edited and mixed by Derek Clements. For more information about today's episode or to sign up for my morning newsletter, Wake Up Call, go to katiecouric.com. You can also find me at katiecouric on Instagram and all my social media channels. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, 
visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2 and streaming on NFL Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL Plus. Visit NFL.com slash schedule release to learn more.